zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Knight Riders, released April 10th, 1981, the same day as Excalibur. It was written and directed by George A. Romero and released by United Film Distribution, who distributed Mother's Day last year, and we'll see Lion of the Desert from them later this year. The original title, Knights had already been registered by John Borman for what became Excalibur, and so it was changed to Bike Nights on the way to <laughs> Night Riders. I, oh, I kind of like Bike Nights, too. Bike, bike Nights is okay, but it, sound, it sounds even cheesier than Night yeah. Riders. <laughs> and there was, there's another bonus to calling it Night Riders. Uh, Romero was interested in adapting T.H. White's 1958 novel The Once and Future King as a medieval time story, but was advised by producer Samuel Z. Arkov to find a way to involve motorcycles and rock music. Wait, so it was just a yes. straight-up medieval novel, and mm-hmm. he put he added the bikes? Yeah, it was originally <laughs> going to be a medieval story. I feel like it's a stroke of genius, to be honest, because I'm just like, who would write this story right. like it's so out of left field mm-hmm. like i was certain he had gone to like a ren fair and just felt like he he saw like the camaraderie well that was part of like it, it too that that he did fall in love with those people that do those stories but he wanted to do a legitimate medieval story and then so was funny. convinced to modernize it actors tony todd morgan freeman and Lawrence fishburne were all considered for roles in the film but didn't end up getting them holly hunter was a local student and worked on the set as a production assistant apparently because the film was released just prior to the similarly named TV series Night Rider, the show's producers had to cut the film's producers a check in exchange for keeping the name. Really? Yeah. That's hilarious. So that's fun. I wonder how much that check was. I can't imagine it was a huge check, especially since nobody knew how far Night Rider was going to go. But yeah, they got money out of it. Not that it went directly to Romero. I think it went to Arkoff or whoever produced and forgive me for my ignorance, the show spells it with a K as well? Yes. Okay. But it's two words and it's not plural. Mm-hmm. Mm. The film opens in the woods under flutey music, conceivably in medieval times. A crow crashes into camera and caws, waking a naked Ed Harris as Billy. He looks around getting his bearings when suddenly a similarly nude woman, Lynette, sits <laughs> up behind him. And we cut to Billy standing naked waist deep in a river self-flagellating. Which is hitting yourself with sticks, just just yeah. to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> there are just bubbles in the water coming up behind yeah. him. <laughs> or whatever else you imagined he was doing to himself. <laughs> Self-flagellating. He farted himself out. <laughs> that's, that's abstract. I wasn't thinking of farting, by the way. I was thinking that people would think you were saying self-filating, which might not be a word. I don't know. <laughs> That's a, that's probably a thing. <laughs> you finally made it, huh? <laughs> Bowls resting on his chin. <laughs> well, what it cost. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about what was it Marilyn Manson that supposedly yeah. removed some of his some ribs. ribs. <laughs> <laughs> Lynette watches him from the banks as he dresses. 
Later, Billy kneels before a sword stabbed into the forest floor with a hand on each side of the crossguard, still naked. He lifts the sword and begins to dress himself as Lynette places a crown on her head. She helps him pull on a full set of plate mail, and together they mount his steed, a 1981 Honda CBX 1000 inline six motorcycle. A group of men cut notches into lances so they're more likely to break on impact during competition to avoid serious injuries. Tom Savini rides through on a motorcycle as Morgan and smashes a hanging watermelon with his new mace weapon. Another competitor, Alan, warns him that the mace may be too heavy. He lets Alan take it for a spin and confirms this isn't a fair sidearm and Morgan promises not to use it today. Pippin interrupts the chat to announce that they are in some trouble with the local law and the show may be canceled. In the food court area, an obese man clumsily drops an ear of corn in the dirt and tries to steal a replacement for free, but the salesperson calls him out on it. While the customer argues, his daughter loses her patience. Daddy, you're a slob! A fat slob jerk! Mother, you're a wimp! She just really hates her parents. Across the camp, Morgan is hopping on his bike when he is approached by the fair's female mechanic, and they flirt a bit, but he jokingly shoves her arms away, not wanting to get tainted with her grease. Eventually, he steals a smooch, and she smears a line of grease over his nose. Alan almost crashes his bike into the belligerent customer's daughter, Julie, and at first she blames him for crashing near her until she realizes that he was avoiding hitting her, and that's why he crashed. She helps him up and apologizes. She lifts his bike momentarily, and then drops it back on his leg, pinching him a second time. He assures her that he's okay and that falling off the motorcycle is what he's paid to do. He invites her for her first ride on a motorcycle and she hesitates for a half second before excitedly jumping on the bike behind him. The police are hassling Tuck and Morgan about a permit. Tuck presents one to the men and the police insist that the show isn't safe without a doctor on site. Tuck points to Merlin and says he's a doctor. You're a doctor? Medical doctor? That's right. Licensed to practice? In good standing. No malpractice, clean record, no problems. And he's in, like, robes and stuff, and I think he's mm-hmm. got uh, butterflies painted on his face. And they might be tattoos. And they're, they're... No, I think there's a scene where he doesn't have them on oh, okay. there. So I think that they're just painted on. Because he uh, did wear those in his real life. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah, because I, I was looking this person up. Yeah. I was just like, oh, are these actual his tattoos? Alan and Billy cross paths on the country road with their girls riding behind them. Alan lets him know about the trouble with the cops. Lynette shoots Julie a brief, jealous glance from the back of Billy's bike. Billy arrives at the camp and confirms that even though they have a proper permit, the police are asking for extra money in exchange for not shutting down the tournament. So they got the sheriff to sign their permit, and everything's on the up and up. But the cops are pretending like, oh, I didn't talk to the sheriff about this. How do I know you didn't forge it or whatever? Billy flatly refuses to pay them any more money, despite Morgan's insistence that they do so. But Billy insists that it would be morally wrong to pay these men, and he can't accept that. He dares them to shut the show down. The tournament is begun, and a chorus of horns play Pippin onto the stage. He describes for the crowd the backstory of their tournament. Billy is the king of the court, and he won his place in trial by combat. In the audience, we get a sloppy-looking cameo from author Stephen King as Hoagie Man, (laughs) <laughs> that's how he's credited well he is holding a sandwich in every shot of this film that yeah. he's in yeah and just food is just falling out of his mouth as he's talking yeah and his wife tabitha king is playing hoagie man's wife here 
On his way to the stage, Billy swings the mace once more before announcing that it's fair game for Morgan to use in combat. Pippin calls for horns to introduce the king, but Punch in the audio van accidentally pries the knob off of their equipment, and the trumpeters have to fake the sound of their instruments. <laughs> Billy is referred to as Sir William the King, and he and Lynette take their thrones beside the competitive grounds. The knights are called to the field, and they take their bikes off ramps, jumping over jesters moving around the, the course on foot. Sir William waves the flag to indicate the first joust. A man is knocked cleanly from his motorcycle, which continues racing riderless toward the audience until it's shoved hard to the ground by crews serving this express purpose. They're, they're like rodeo clowns mm-hmm. to yeah. tackle motorcycles. Distract the, distract the motorcycles from Right, <laughs> yeah. They wave a flag around. <laughs> Stephen King's hoagie man in the audience convinces his wife that the blood they see isn't real and the men are hiding blood bags in their mouths. Another pair of knights square up to joust. Sir Ewan defeats Sir Bleoboris. That's the name, Bleoboris. Rocky defeats Marhalt, and on the sidelines, Rocky removes her helmet to reveal a young blonde woman inside, and Julie is ecstatic to see a woman represented in the competition, because representation matters. Next, Morgan, the infamous Black Knight, faces off against Sir Kay. The joust is a draw, as both men are knocked from their bikes. It is up to King William to declare victor, or to demand another round of combat using hand weapons. Neither man was the clear victor. Fight again, Sir Knights. Morgan had the advantage, so Sir Kay will choose. Mount it or hack, Sir Kay. Clearly, he just wants to see Morgan use this new weapon that he got. Morgan almost refuses to, but eventually he's like, no, you know what? Bring it back over here. I got it. For this round, referred to as side hacks, the combatants are riding on a sidecar with a squire steering the bike so that they can focus on fighting each other. They're With, like chariots. Yeah, and and this this doesn't seem to be something that you would see in medieval a, times. In medieval times, anyway. Well, sometimes they would just strap a smaller horse to the side of yeah. a large horse. <laughs> Morgan's mace and Kay's axe crash against each other several times. As the fight rages on, Merlin pops up on the sidelines to present King William with a helmet. He will face off against the victor, and very quickly, that means Morgan. Lynette reminds William that his shoulder was injured in a recent battle and he's not fully recovered, but he won't hear it. Merlin collects a small medical bag to see to Sir Kay, who is walked injured from the battlefield. Now Morgan wields his mace against the king and his sword. Lynette watches terrified from the sidelines, fearing for her king. Alan and the other knights gear up to interrupt the fight in case Morgan wins. What is it? If the king goes down, we have to be ready for rescue. What? We have to get to Morgan before he can make the king yield. If Billy surrenders, he loses the crown. So essentially the whole thing is rigged in the king's favor because these knights have already been eliminated from the tournament, but they can right. jump back in to save him at the last second. Yeah, but I guess I guess the idea is that he remains worthy because they're willing to save him. Sure, mm-hmm. that makes sense. As soon as Billy hits the dirt, he's surrounded by knights and a stretcher is called for him. He leaves a lot of blood on the field. One of the knights, I think Rocky, swings a chain into the spokes of Morgan's front wheel and the entire bike flips over impossibly fast, dumping the rider flat on the top of his head, no doubt killing him instantly. This was insane. Like, I was really shocked by this. I had to pause the movie for a minute because I was sure that he had, yeah, he had to be dead and that couldn't have been a planned stunt. Like, it could not have 
been done that way on purpose and people rush out immediately like to look after him like right right slow like don't touch him let's wait and see how he can move after that like who and and i wouldn't be surprised if that was actually tom savini because he does stunts for other people in (laughs) movies Mm -hmm. so i I would be surprised if he let someone else do his motorcycle riding but this was this this landing was incorrect yeah and we see how it was supposed to happen later in the movie because they do this bike right. flipping thing over and over say, again and people do like smooth cartwheels off right of it. it's not the only time it happens but this clearly went wrong but you're like if he was injured maybe he was fine maybe he was injured whatever happened they're like we're using that shot because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was amazing but it clearly went wrong um and i can't believe nobody died or was paralyzed here kind of reminded me of the mad max stunt where the guy goes flying off his motorcycle oh yeah oh yeah yeah and yeah. it was like that oh that was like that wasn't supposed to happen like that but we we're very lucky yeah but it's pretty impressive that george romero was able to cover this obvious murder on the set of his film because <laughs> none were reported as far as i could tell that's okay tom speed just packed it back up and yeah. like used it for the next film yeah <laughs> it's it's the the body that they dumped in the trunk yeah. from maniac yeah uh i like rocky's line here when he comes up to to morgan after he's like back on his feet and he goes basics morgan you forgot your basics yeah and, and morgan goes no i didn't <laughs> <laughs> like no i basically landed on the top of my head i, I, I just like the, the the line read no i didn't <laughs> <laughs> i feel like maybe she surprised him with a little improv and taught so he didn't know what to do <laughs> no no i didn't you are in a side tent, Merlin tends to William's wound. Apparently, William's armor scissored the skin of his shoulder very near an artery. William says that it's nobody's fault, but Alan is angry because it's clearly Morgan's fault. Everybody leaves the tent except for Alan, who lectures Billy on how reckless he's been lately and that they're all depending on him. Outside, Merlin intercepts a boy looking for Billy's autograph. Alone in the tent, Billy tells Merlin about his crow dream. Billy thinks it's a message from the future. And Merlin says that that's not how magic works. There's no such thing as fortune telling and everything is probability. He says he believes in destiny and Merlin tells him the story of the original King Arthur. Harmonica sounds. <laughs> this is all staring at. Once upon a time ago, what was he? Days of old when nights were bold, there was King Arthur. Oh, Merlin told him it was own kid would kill him. So Arthur sends all the babies in the land away on a boat, not knowing which of the many women he was always messing with might have had his kid. Boat wrecks in a storm. <coughs> Destiny, big D, you see, ah. Uh, one baby lives, Arthur's baby. Nobleman finds it along the shore, raises it to be a fighting night. Night comes by one day and Waste King blows him away. If Arthur hadn't tried to stop it, it might never have happened. Of course, they only got the King's body. Pippin announces what I thought was the final competition between Sir Alan and Noble Hector. Before the fight, Julie places her golden necklace over the end of Alan's lance to give him luck. Alan warns her that if this was a gift from another guy, it will be bad luck and her fault if he loses. He wins, though. 
and moves on to the actual final fight of the day against Sir Ewan. I really liked though, because um, she was so she was inspired when she saw some other lady like put a favor mm-hmm. on the other lands, which yeah. was you know like a like a handkerchief type thing, and then she puts the necklace on there, and you know after he says that she's like, but it was like a gift from my dad, and so she walks away like kind of distraught because she did give him this thing that was potentially bad luck and then realizes that she has a handkerchief in her hair and it's just like wh- how did you forget that like yeah. you literally just saw you someone, watch tie somebody a handkerchief. else take a handkerchief and like and put it on the lance like you have one of those right there <laughs> but that's also her her look is i can't believe i forgot that i had this in my hair this whole yeah. time oh yeah yeah but i just i i was thinking that throughout the entire scene so i i liked that she acknowledged the fact he wins though and moves on to fight the actual final fight of the day against sir ewan everybody applauds king william's reappearance from the medical truck doesn't he correct people when they call him he does ewan? <laughs> he's like it's ewan yeah <laughs> turns out ewan doesn't like the way that people are pronouncing his name <laughs> It's Ewan, the Invincible. Ewan McGregor. <laughs> the Invincible. <laughs> but the titles spell it E-Wayne, like W-A-I-N. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. I'm just going to say it the way he says to. Ewan. Ewan. Like an electronic win. Ewan. The mechanic woman tells Julie it's okay to run to Alan to help him up now that the contest is over, so she does. Afterwards, melons are strung up in nets, and customers of the fair with their own motorcycles are invited to take swings at the hanging targets. One biker, a bald guy with a swastika carved into his forehead, signs a waiver on his way in. Don't forget to pick up a helmet. It's a thing that looks like your head, only it's got a chin strap. After the fight, Morgan apologizes to Billy and promises not to use the mace anymore. The kid from before walks up to Sir William with an issue of Cycle Rider magazine for him to sign. The kid says his name is Billy, too. The article inside says Bill Davis, Night for the 80s, and apparently he was the cover story for this magazine without even knowing it. He refuses to sign the magazine for the kid because he doesn't think of himself as a stunt biker, but rather the king of this small group of people. I'm sorry. I don't like this kind of stuff. All I want you to do is just sign your name. I can't. See, I. This is like evil Knievel or something like that. It's got nothing to do with what we're doing. Do you understand? I can't. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. After Billy walks away, Morgan offers to sign the magazine for the kid as the future king. Alan buys Julie a necklace so the next time she'll have something to hang on his lance that won't lose him the contest. After the show, the bikers they invited onto their battlegrounds drive around like maniacs trying to steal prop weapons and destroy sets. They try to leave the show with their stolen weapons, and a pair of knights chase them down the road. I mean, like, what are you expecting letting random civilians participate in these things? I I feel like stealing weapons is the best case scenario. I feel like they could really hurt just, you know, random patrons of the fair and themselves and wreck all sorts of stuff and they are trying to get them to sign waivers on the way in but not every one of these guys signed a waiver like well, some of well, these people are just rushing on the audience the didn't sign a waiver to get right. hit by random motorcycles yeah yeah maybe they did i don't know <laughs> what i thought for sure was going to happen was uh these guys were going to steal the weapons and they get caught doing something bad and then the, the, the they the were going to get blamed for it yeah, yeah. 
but that doesn't happen. One of the guys catches up to a thief, and they have a surprisingly pleasant exchange. He hands the weapon over, and the knight pulls away from him, leaving the thief to crash headfirst into a barn off the side of the road. But he doesn't. Yeah, he barely (laughs) swerves just in time to avoid it, but then he crashes through a full row of signs outside of a farm (laughs) on his way to flying off an embankment into a lake. Which is weird, because he almost came to a complete stop at the barn. Yeah. Like, he avoided crashing into it. And then he sped up again (laughs) and just crashed sign after sign. But it's like four or five sides in a row, and it's like a cartoon moment where it's like they just reframe each sign one at a time as he plows through them. The other knight, Rocky, catches up with her thief and prepares to joust him on a road until he chickens out and jumps off his bike. Unmanned, the bike crashes through a chain fence and into a ravine where it explodes off camera. <laughs> just just blew up, <laughs> hit grass and exploded. Good thing he didn't drive it off the road right there. Back at the camp, everybody cleans up. Some choreograph sword play for fights in the next town. They sing songs around a campfire. In their tent that night... Lynette warns Billy that every time he does something crazy like this, he's pushing their followers away. Billy insists that if he ignores his code of honor and compromises in the name of playing it safe, that they'll lose something more important. He complains about how dumb the crowds are, the bigger their shows get, and specifically points to the kid who seemed to mistake him for Evil Knievel. That kid thinks you're Billy Davis, Sir William the Knight. You're his hero. I'm not trying to be a hero! I'm fighting the dragon! Around the campfire, Morgan says he never much cared for the King Arthur stories, and Pippin jokes that he only just recently learned Morgan Le Fay was a woman. I was wondering if they realized that, because the second they introduced him as Morgan, I'm like, Wait a minute. I thought Morgan was a woman in all of the stories. Yeah. (laughs) That's all right. Pip's known all his life he's a woman. And the whole crowd gets quiet about the joke they clearly perceive as being over the line. Angie asks Pippin repeatedly if he's gay, and Pippin clearly doesn't want to answer the question, but she won't drop it. Angie suggests that maybe Pippin would get less shit from people if he was more honest about who he was, the way Rocky is. Pippin says Rocky doesn't take shit because she kicks ass, but Rocky echoes Angie's point that she's honest and comfortable in her sexuality. The scene ends without Pippin responding. Police crash the campsite in the middle of the night and start pounding on the door to one of the vans, claiming they have reason to believe there's a controlled substance inside. In place of a warrant, the officer points a gun in the unfortunately named Bagman's face <laughs> and is let into the trailer. Tuck slowly pulls his vehicle away from the van getting raided, and he finds Alan naked in the woods and gets him up to speed. Julie's here too, also naked, and Alan leaves her with Tuck while he heads back to the camp to help deal with the police. Yeah, t- Tuck is like, I didn't want them to find my still. Like, I keep telling you, Tuck, wine isn't illegal. But it's much more fun to pretend that it is. <laughs> <laughs> He's very drunk at this point. Yeah. yeah. The the character, not me. Yeah. Yes. Well, sure. Little column A, little column B. Tuck can't stop staring at Julie's boobs. Hey, didn't you take some vows or something? Back in the raided van, the cops find what they were looking for because they brought it with them and planted it. The cop gives Billy a second opportunity to pay him off, and Morgan urges him to take it, but Billy says, fuck off, and arrest me too if you think that we're going to bribe you without having broken any laws. Billy wants to be a witness to anything that happens to Bagman in jail, so the cop arrests both men, and Billy tells everybody to wait here. 
Morgan shouts at everybody that they should just bribe the cops and be done with it because they're going to lose $2,000 in payment if they can't get to the next town in time for their show. Lynette decides to follow half of Billy's instructions. Nobody's going to pay the cops shit, but a lot of the team is going to get packed and on the road for the next town immediately. We hard cut to jail, where Billy is screaming at the cop while he beats Bagman's face to a bloody pulp in the adjacent cell. It's actually really terrifying. <laughs> like, yeah. the whole movie yeah. has been, like, joking around in silly stunts, and suddenly it's like, oh my god, like, is this a movie about a person getting murdered in jail? Yeah. When Billy finally gets the cop to stop beating on Bagman, Bagman erupts into laughter. We cut to Alan and Julie knocking on a woman's door at 4 a.m., asking after the local sheriff. Apparently, Julie knows where the sheriff lives and went to speak with him personally, but he's not home. But the sheriff would be on their side because he signed the permit that they're claiming isn't sufficient. Right. The sheriff's wife tells them that he's off fishing in some local gorge, and they head off to find him on Alan's motorcycle, while Merlin continues down the road to the next town. On the road, Angie tries to instigate a conversation with Pippin to help her stay awake, and the two of them fight it out for a bit. Pippin tells her what a shitty boyfriend Morgan is to her, and that he's probably cheating on her right now, and she apologizes for what she said around the campfire, but insists that she wasn't trying to be mean. They forgive each other, when suddenly Pippin notices Steve passing them on a motorcycle on the opposite side of the freeway. Oh, Steve! Hey, it's Steve! I was like, flipping through my notes. Who is Steve? Steve? Which one was Steve? (laughs) None of them have been Steve so far. I think it's fair, though. I mean, like, they're introducing the character to us. Yeah. You know, but in a way, like, of course we know Steve. I just want to remind the listeners how much work goes into keeping track of all these characters in my head. There are a crap ton of people. There's so many named characters in this movie. Yes. I think they do a fairly good job, though, of reminding us who everybody is in in the movie itself. Sometimes they do. Like, I don't think I got... Well, I wasn't trying to write them down, but I, I didn't get lost as to who was who at all. In this right. Movie. But there's there's some characters like, for instance, the guy playing the guitar who only get their name said once. Yeah. And so if you miss it, it doesn't then matter at all. you don't know his name for all of your notes. And then the listeners are like, who is playing the guitar? Who cares? No one's going to believe me when I lie that I saw this movie because I can't <laughs> name the person playing the guitar. It's Lee. His name's Lee. <laughs> Amazingly, the next morning, the sheriff has been dragged to the jail from out of the gorge and chews out the arresting officer for fucking around with these people. The sheriff had signed their permit to perform in town and the cop just refused to honor it, and so now the sheriff has missed out on his one chance this season to visit the gorge. On his way out of the jail, Billy threatens the cop. You better keep one eye on the door wherever you want, because someday I'm going to ride in here and I'm going to wipe you out. His friends and the sheriff have to hold him back from attacking the man. He does that thing like, it's like, I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm all right. Yeah. Comes in for a second round. (laughs) We cut to Julie's home where she is packing to leave for good. On the way out of the house, she sees her mother downstairs with a big black eye and guesses correctly that her father did that to her because of Julie. I was okay with her calling her father terrible names, but it's pretty terrible of her to have called her mother terrible names, knowing full well that she's in an incredibly abusive relationship. Yeah, I kind of wanted her to do it again, though, on the way out of the house right here. And just remind us that Julie's like a dick about everything. <laughs> she's like, Mom, by the way, you're a wimp. I'll see you later. Aww. Just leaves. Yeah. Well, well, when she was packing her stuff up, I was like, what? You've, you've known this guy for like a day and you're leaving home already? And then when I saw her mom, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe yeah, you, get should get out of there. you should get out of there. At the very least, she, she could steal some plate mail armor from this uh, traveling circus and then just wear it around the house. Just lance her father. <laughs> <laughs> they leave, and Julie's mother runs to the kitchen and starts running the sink while crying. 
Billy complains to Merlin that they didn't stay put like he asked, and Merlin basically says, hey, when you're in jail, you're not in charge of our decisions anymore. So, sorry, we get to we get to decide things when you're not here. We cut to the crew setting up shop in the next town. Pippin and Angie are stapling flyers to telephone poles when they are approached by Sheila Farrow, an anchor woman, and her friend, photographer Judy Rawls. These characters have first and last names. Mm-hmm. Lastly, Sheila introduces Joe Bontempi, He's an entertainment agent, and apparently he's spoken with their attorney, Steve, about the work they do. He's interested in representing the troupe. Tuck finishes getting their permit paperwork taken care of, and when Judy Rawls sees him coming, she is immediately smitten. <gasps> Sheila! My prayers have been answered! I'm trying to think of who Tuck reminds me of. There's an actor nowadays that looks exactly like him with that same, like, Friar Tuck thing, but it's not... Mm. I think he shaved it down for the movie, but maybe not. A little bit like David Koechner? Yeah, I was thinking yeah. that he was well, a little it's, Koechner it's more like Jim Belushi-sized guy, mm. but I'm blanking on his name. Sheila seems to think they have a shot at getting the performances televised. Morgan pulls up and informs Sheila that not only is Billy not in town yet, but he's in jail. He assures her that they'll get along fine without Billy. The troupe organizes a parade through the middle of town to call attention to their show. Crowds line the streets and they sell tickets on the sidelines. Already, Joe Bontempi is planning how he would package a show like this. What, we'll have a, a coupon day or something? Morgan throws a flower to Sheila on the sidewalk and she's totally into him. A Native American man in the crowd, who I was certain was a Native American woman in this first shot, watches the show silently. On their way into town, Merlin sees Steve on the road and they make plans to camp together for the night. Steve tells Billy about Bontempi and his plans to represent them. He will still manage their smaller gigs for them, but Bontempi can book big shows with $15,000 paydays. You could pull 30 or 40 out of some of these big county fairs. Hell, Billy, I can't even get those folks on the telephone. We can tell by the look on his face that Billy is not a fan of this plan. I don't totally at this point understand, you know, Billy's motivation here and why he's so anti, you know, big bigger gigs and stuff. Like, I, I feel like... Yeah, I get that he's, like, super into this, you know, and he wants to maintain the integrity of the troupe, but can you not do that and book big shows? I think he wants the people that come to the shows to be intelligent fans of the art of what they're doing and not, like, the lowest common denominator, like, idiots that they pulled in off the street. I don't know. He they wants had a lot of be... idiots at their last show. Yeah, and he complained about that, too. <laughs> I guess too. that's true. Um, he d- he doesn't like that the show is just full of a bunch of hoagie mans. Well, and I feel like he would do this whether there was an audience or not. Right. And at one point they do. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I just, um, like. I think that this is supposed to be a metaphor for George Romero making movies and people saying we could get so much more money if you get this agent and you do this thing and you hire all the people that we say and you clean everything right. up so that it appeals to way more people. But I can't and, do it and he my says, way. That's not what I yeah. want. What I want to do is my thing, and I don't care how many people show up to it because yeah. I just want to make my thing. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing that I like the most about this movie is how unapologetic it is. It It's completely, like, just totally earnest in, like, how passionate all of these people are about right. what they do and mm-hmm. it's not a joke it's never a joke it's, yeah it's yeah. absolutely not a joke it's just like this is what we love this is what we believe in this is what we do and it's serious and 
that's it. It's it's not supposed to be funny. And there's not even, no one here is making fun of him for caring that much about it. No. They just disagree with him about the best plan of action, but they all have the same heart and they all have the same, you know, desires for the and show to keep going. To him. And to yeah. each other. Yeah. The, the whole thing is a big family. Steve points out that the show gets more expensive every time Billy hires new people, especially with all the injuries they incur, but Billy doesn't want to treat the troupe like a band that's just performing in towns. He wants it to be a way of life for everyone that's involved. Billy officially turns down whatever money Steve's trying to infuse into the show. At first, it seems like, at the very least, Bagman understands where Billy is coming from. Sometime in the past, he was beaten severely and gave up, and he was so embarrassed about abandoning his ideals that he tried to commit suicide. But this time, when he rose from the beating of the cop in jail with a big smile on his face, he said it's because he lives with Billy in Camelot and nothing can compromise that. But then, Bagman's point changes, and he's telling Billy that if the show disbands, it doesn't matter that he stuck to his word. Man, you can have the most beautiful ideals in the whole world, but if you die, your ideals are going to die with you. After everyone goes to sleep, Billy tosses Bon Tempe's business card into the fire. He comes to an internal decision and he wakes Bagman to inform him that the fight to live and fighting for his ideals are not separate fights to him and that he can't give up on his personal code. Billy hops on Steve's bike and abandons them. We cut to Tuck's van where he and Judy Rawls are enjoying an entire pizza in bed. Yeah, they're like having food sex. Yeah. And it's very greasy. <laughs> it's super hot. The Tuck pizza. refills. Yeah. yeah, it's very hot pizza. Yeah. <laughs> also sexy pizza. Tuck refills her goblet with wine as Judy drops big globs of melted cheese all over her boobs. The entire troupe is sitting in a circle around Lynette, who's announcing a plan to pay everyone equally to keep things fair. But even then, people from one department are upset that so much money is going to another department. They're like, we don't need this many weapons. We don't need this many. Like, it's like a little government, and they're arguing over all kinds of spending problems. Because this is a council meeting. Right. Billy rolls up on Steve's bike, and he's not happy. As he parks, one of the prop builders complains about all the money wasted replacing weapons and bikes each week because of sheer carelessness. Then they let the townies ride with the stuff. Hey, look, you don't like it? Get out! He just freaks out on them. He continues shouting at the group for complaining about petty squabbles when he spent last night in jail watching Bagman getting his head beat in as though he didn't volunteer to do exactly that of his own volition. Mm -hmm. Like, you asked them to arrest you. We all could have done that, but we're not all stupid. <laughs> Someone tries to convince him that he misunderstood what they were saying before he arrived, but Billy questions why they were saying anything. He would have preferred to have found them all sitting quietly in a circle, awaiting his arrival to begin conversation. But what's happening here looks an awful lot like a council meeting. What is this, a council meeting? Huh? This is a council meeting. You can't have a council meeting without everybody being here! You cannot have a council meeting without everyone being here! Oh, go shove your goddamn council meeting! The more he lashes out at people, the faster they quit the show. He leaves the circle to go bother Tuck and his lady friend. Billy is for some reason upset that Tuck has a girl in the van, as though he's breaking his character's vow of celibacy. Well, uh, and Tuck is wearing, like, like devil horns. Right. But also, it's like, is, is he mad that they got a pizza? Like, that's not, like, you can only eat turkey legs <laughs> and corn, and that's it. <laughs> Even though I don't think we had corn in medieval times because didn't the Native Americans introduce that to in America? He asks Judy who she is, but she doesn't answer. 
until he asks if she's with the guy in the suit outside and she hastily admits that she is. Billy snags up what's left of their pizza and rushes out to Bon Tempe and throws the pizza in his face. He gets it all over his face and his clothes. And then Bon Tempe shouts after Billy. I didn't order this! <laughs> like, I think what he means is like, don't get mad at me because they had pizza because I didn't order it for them. Yeah. But it, at first I thought he was saying like, excuse me, this is not the pizza I ordered. I don't <laughs> yeah. know why you threw this at me. <laughs> that, that's that's how exactly how I took <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Like, like he was trying to play it off as a joke. Yeah. Von Tempe complains about Billy's apparent insanity, and Sheila suggests they make a deal with the more reasonable Morgan. This one's much better looking. Back in their tent together, Lynette and Billy have the same argument that he's been having with everybody all over again. Lynette points out the opportunities that she's walked away from to be a part of this world with him, and she didn't do it for the show, she did it to be with him. Her last line of the scene, though, hints at a minor betrayal that we've gotten little glimpses of earlier. I'm here. I don't know if it's because of you anymore, Billy, but I'm here. Before the next show, groups of local bikers show up in full plate mail, and guests confuse them for members of the troupe. Bon Tempe is leaving to get started booking big shows for them, and Morgan promises to steal away a pack of writers after today's performance. Which shouldn't be difficult considering what a dick Billy's been for the last two yeah. days. Morgan approaches Angie and the mechanic team to announce his departure, and Angie tells him that he can't form a new kingdom without winning the crown, still trapped in the rules of Billy's universe. But Morgan points out that he's beaten Bill over and over again, but the game is rigged, and knights are resurrected to stop him from taking over each time. They call him a selfish bastard. See? I gotta love myself. Everybody else thinks I'm a bastard. One of his fellow knights lovingly strokes Morgan's face as if to say, I don't think you're a bastard. <laughs> I don't think you're crazy. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. Morgan makes a final plea for Angie to join him because he'll need a mechanic, and she turns him down. Pippin tries to explain to Morgan what an idiot he is for underappreciating Angie's feelings for him. Suddenly, Punch jumps in to side with Pippin against Morgan to remind him that this is bigger than just a job what they have here. Pippin seems surprised by the support, and Morgan is dumbfounded that everyone is so pissed off at him. Punch, by the way, looks exactly like the rapper Lil Dicky, but wearing ridiculous medieval jester garb, which I can actually see Lil Dicky wearing also. <laughs> Angie hops on a bike and drives away. In the next round of combat, in front of an audience, the bikers are being just as reckless as before, destroying props in the ring, flipping their bikes, and nearly colliding with Judy Rawls, who's taking photographs from the middle of the arena. When they flip the bike, one of the riders is injured and has to be carted off the field. On the sidelines, Angie hasn't finished fixing Rocky's bike when she has to enter the battle. She tells her it's only good for one round. Just before taking the field, Rocky switches her lance for a hand weapon, and her competitor does the same. Everyone seems to be getting very reckless, and Pippin, announcing the fight, trails off mid-narration, not seeing the point of it. He calls to the quote-unquote trumpet van, to play the appropriate medieval music, but instead disco tunes are pumped out of the speakers. But William, the audience is loving it. Yeah, yeah, everyone's dancing to it immediately. They're very excited. William is angered by the anachronism, so he gets up from the throne to approach the speaker van, and on the way he passes Pippin and says, are you leaving with Morgan tonight? And he says, no. And he says, well, then why don't you get back on stage? Punch offers to take over announcing duties for Pippin. I'll go in for you if you want. You do that for me, you? Sure. Won't be nearly as good as you. Pippin is completely flattered 
and returns to his microphone to resume announcing. As soon as William enters the speaker van, we get the closest close-up of his fantastic ass so far. <laughs> he flips the music off, and the crowd turns on him immediately. <laughs> they're, they're just, like, ready to tear the place apart because you turned off their shitty disco music. Yeah. Punch and Pippin try to win the crowd back by encouraging the live musicians to perform era-appropriate music. The fight gets more and more brutal until Rocky finally tears her enemy down in the ring. His bike, however, continues moving toward the sidelines, and none of the staff are in range to tackle it to the ground. A small child sits in a stroller ahead of the bike, and the child's mother calls out to her. Jennifer! But when she gets closer, the bike ramps off a wood plank and into the air where it collides with the mother's face. I feel like this was supposed to be like them demonstrating how people left, and so there's gaps in their staffing now that yeah. there's yeah. not people doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but it is pretty shocking to watch the motorcycle fly through the air and knock those women out. Yeah, I was definitely not expecting this to happen. No. Although I never for a moment thought that they were going to crush a baby with a motorcycle. No, I didn't think so either, but no, the trajectory of the Ram- bike I don't think would have hit it anyways. You don't think George Romero would have had a bloody not, baby Not in course? this movie. <laughs> Maybe in other movies. She's at least unconscious by the time she hits the ground, but she looks completely dead. Her arms are bent every which way and her face is splattered with blood. She looks like a Family Guy character on the ground. <laughs> like, you know how in Family Guy, whenever someone hits the ground there, like it looks like all their bones are broken and they yeah. just flopped the wrong way. Pippin is trying to calm everybody down and makes room to carry the lady to safety, but the townies have chosen now to enter the ring on their custom bikes with homemade armor against the instructions of the announcer. The actual knights from the troop decide to end this disruption by attacking them back. A mime collects the baby Jennifer, from the audience and i really wanted them to just adopt this kid into their troop after they killed her mother <laughs> you're one of us now we accept a one of us we accept a one of us the knights make quick work of the townies and they all crumple to the ground rocky's bike was not built to last another round and falls in half quickly but she collects a lance and then smashes one of the townies with it as he comes off a ramp totally fucking him up but it's a great shot Two more townies get their bikes flipped rapidly, but they do the somersault at the end of the right. they did it twist that they were supposed to do. And on stage, Punch leans over Pippin's shoulder and asks, You can't have this alive, will you be my lover? Yes! yes! He shouts his yes into the microphone by accident. King William finally exits the sound van to see the mess that's become of his contest. Out of the smoke, a biker with twin ravens on his armor pulls up to face off with William. When the rider opens his helmet, it's the Native American who watched the parade earlier. Now, now Billy is seeing the black bird. From his dream. Yeah, so he's assuming that this is what he's been waiting for. Right. Alan tries to intercept the fight on Billy's behalf because he's still injured, but Billy won't have it. He knocks Alan off his bike and then chops him across the chest with a sword to convince him out of the ring so that he can fight his dream competitor. Billy forces Alan to yield and moves on to his fight. In the heat of the battle, the cops show up again to give them crap, probably for murdering a lady. Well, but there aren't, like, there ends up being no consequences to this woman being hit in the face with a rogue motorcycle. Like, it seems like something should have happened. Well, Well, maybe she doesn't have any family and she's mentally damaged enough that she can't even file suit. Well, well, they, they mention the, Billy mentions to something to Steve later about their insurance premiums going up. Yeah. So I think that they are insured to cover injury to audience. Yeah. 
Eventually, Billy wins the fight, but he collapses from blood loss before he can force his opponent to completely yield. Billy's blood drips down the length of his sword to pool on the fallen rider's chest. Merlin tries to comfort Lynette as they carry Billy to the medical tent. The knights that aren't leaving with Morgan are leaving on their own. That night in Billy's tent, Lynette informs him and their attorney that the sheriff stopped by to say that the mother of the nearly injured child will survive, that she's okay. Surviving is uh, yeah. kind of yeah. broad. <laughs> she's going to be in a chair. She's, she's not dead. <laughs> it's going to be like in uh, The Visitor. The mother didn't die, but she just won't be able to walk anymore. Billy is proud to have defeated the blackbird from his dream, but sorry to hear that his knights have left him with either Morgan or without him. Alan, Julie, and another of the knights, Boars, drive way out of town to visit an old friend who's settled down with a wife and children nearby. We cut across town, where Morgan and his team of deserters are all hanging out at the pool of Sheila's home. Morgan is turning into a marijuana zombie in the pool. Give me... Don't! Suddenly their agent arrives, Mr. Bontempe, and he introduces them all to his girlfriend, Jeannie, who also has a name. I think they all have names. <laughs> Sheila seems annoyed at the sound of Bontempe's voice and moves into the house, and Morgan quickly follows her. Bontempe tries to stop him and have him sign some paperwork on the way in, but Morgan completely ignores him. Tuck informs Bontempe that he and Judy had a baby while he was away, and it looks like an inflatable dolphin pool toy. We had a child while you were gone. <laughs> Say hi to Joe. He's the boss. Baby, now, Joe. Don't is this before or after Day of the Dolphin? <laughs> I after. don't know. This is after? <laughs> yeah, is it must after? be. Okay. So is that a reference to that? Because well, he's doing yeah. the dolphin voice? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I don't think the dolphin voice existed before <laughs> before that movie. Didn't somebody, didn't like Buck Henry do the voice of the dolphin in that movie? I don't know. That sounds... It sounds awesome if it's yeah. true. <laughs> I, I think I'm it Googling. is. Because he wrote it, right? Yeah, uh, I think so. Baby love, Joe. Fa? Why does Fa speak? Fa speak. Yes. Why Fa speak? He does it for me. Why does Fa speak to Pa? Fa love Pa. The credit on IMDb just says Buck. I'm guessing that it's Buck Henry, maybe. It's Buck. It makes sense. He wrote it, so. <laughs> Picture of the dolphin saying that. <laughs> My name is Buck. <laughs> I came to fuck. <laughs> Inside the house, Sheila and Morgan make out for a while until she admits that she lives here with a guy and that this is a fling that they're having. This isn't a full-blown relationship. We cut directly to Tom Savini in the tiniest little bikini bottom. <laughs> laying across a big glittery sign that reads Knight Rider with two fair maidens also in bikinis on either side of him. The look on his face is, I've made a terrible mistake. Yeah, he's very not excited about being a part of this photo shoot. They're in like those cliche pointy princess hats. It's yeah, yeah, just yeah. so great. Yeah, and they have spiked silver bras on. <laughs> he's chewing gum through this whole photo shoot and it's driving me crazy because I feel like they would probably get back like, oh, these are the best poses, but your jaw's in a really weird position in this picture. But this isn't the only person who's very dissatisfied with this photo shoot. Right. Because Tuck and Judy uh, 
Tuck is like, was like, why isn't Judy taking these photos? Yeah, because she's like their staff photographer, mm-hmm. but she's there for documentary photographs, and this is studio photography. It's a whole different thing. But Tuck's like, you've you've taught studio photography, right? She's like, oh yeah, yeah, I have. <laughs> and then he tries to make it sound even worse. He's like, no, this isn't even studio photography. This is just pornography. Don't waste your time. <laughs> Don't demean yourself. And, and he's like saying, this is different. You see, you see those lights? Those aren't real lights. It's like, those aren't real lights? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. During the shoot, Sheila's boyfriend shows up and Morgan looks pretty pissed off about it. Back at the new camp, Billy sits and chats with one of the few remaining loyalists, Lee, who's noodling on a guitar. Billy confides in Lee that he's sure that everyone will come back. And Lee thanks him for the opportunity to be a part of this life. And Billy invites him to play his song, but it's not finished yet. So this, okay. So I'm wondering at this point, like, is the entirety of the, like, Ren Fair all under this hierarchy of the king? Or is it just like this troop of the of the Knight Riders? No, I, th- I think everyone is just accoutrement to the Knights. Okay. It's just things that they hired to be on the sidelines, but they're they're the main event of this thing. Okay. I just didn't know if they're, like... If they had their own little thing and everything else was taken along or like the entire event, like he's, he's the king of all of these people. They all believe in this. Even if they're just the lady that sells the corn. Although I bet that they're, that's how most Renaissance fairs work. That they, they, they swear loyalty to whoever their king is of their thing. And that everyone thinks of it as, because they, the, the reason you sign up to join a permanent Ren fair like traveling thing is because you're into that stuff and you're into mm-hmm. the whole like subservient nature of medieval times and stuff like I that. I mean, I don't think that is how Ren fairs work. I think that they're really just local craftspeople that are like, I'm going to sell my wares at right, the Ren yeah. fair. <laughs> well, if it's like, if it's like the local, like the pleasure fair, like the big Los Angeles one, it's just, yeah, a bunch of people like buy you know booths that they can sell their crap in but i think that for a lot of these traveling shows that are more of a unified Mm -hmm. thing that they actually care a lot about i i I would describe this and and i don't mean to make it sound negative but i would describe this as a traveling circus right yeah and or carnival yeah yeah and that camaraderie that we have seen in films like carney where yeah they're they're just a tight-knit family it's just and in a in a carnival like mm-hmm. or circus like the ringmaster or the you know the circus proprietor is is their quote unquote king of right, sorts. Yeah. Um it just so happens that this guy is the king of kings. Yeah. <laughs> in, 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 <laughs> He's Jesus Christ. Uh but who's also just like a little bit crazy. Right. <laughs> crazy Jesus. Crazes. Cheesy crazy. Cheesy crazy. <laughs> We cut to Alan sitting on a deck beside a river, and he looks over the railing at Julie laying across a rock on the shore. She, he doesn't look at her. <laughs> hold on. I've got the point here. <laughs> <laughs> She's drawn a heart on the rock with water and written his name inside of it, and he gives her a very disgusted look that she doesn't see. <laughs> it's just, I, I had to pause it and send you guys the picture because he's just so disgusted yeah. at the sight of this woman he he looks at her as though she she's finger painting with her own shit on this rock <laughs> like he's just like oh my god why did i bring her <sighs> the friends they're staying with start talking about nothing for a while and then randomly describe marlon brando as an anti anti anti-hero which was clearly added to the script because the actor playing Boars here has an incredible marlon brando impression which he launches right into but then the couple 
like yeah the couple seems really worried and for their lives yeah when he's doing marlon brando well i think they think maybe this is marlon brando and we've offended him (laughs) that's how good the impression is that's what i was thinking it's like are they actually concerned that this guy is truly marlon brando yeah but for whatever reason they don't do what actual friends would do which is laugh at the impression instead they just sit back looking awkward and offended by it i'm not uh Julie keeps begging Alan to take her somewhere to have fun, so he does. <laughs> <laughs> he takes her home to her abusive father and offers an abrupt goodbye forever. Of course, she's in tears for the whole scene and doesn't understand why this is happening. And I don't really either. Yeah. And he doesn't bother to explain it before he leaves with Boris. And we never see this character again. Well, and what's worse is she's out there and the light in her house comes on and she goes like, fuck. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's just like it's already gonna, it's already starting. Yeah. That night, Morgan and Tuck arrive back at the hotel that Bontempi has booked for them, and inexplicably, the rest of the guys are all beating the shit out of each other in the hotel room. I don't know why this is happening. They're strung out. I think I think they're all they're all on drugs. Yeah. Well, it also did drugs like, not exist before? Or they well, just... I I think that there were rules and there was structure and they're they're out on their own now, and it's just Romspringer, you know, like they're just they're going for it. <laughs> I like that. That's good. We cut to Morgan sitting on the side of the road at night as Alan and Boris pull up and demand that he return to the troop. He... I, I was like, wait, how did they find him? I thought that he called them and was waiting for them. Oh, okay. Because I otherwise it would be weird sense. that they would just encounter each other out in yeah. the middle of nowhere. You can only be one king, Morgan. You can't just split off and start over again whenever you want. You both know that inside. You can only be one king one time. That's the law. We cut to the next day, and Alan and Boars are racing toward camera when suddenly, in the distance behind them, Morgan appears with his new bike and armor that Bontempi paid for, and then the rest of the wayward knights in matching armor follow, and they're all on their way back to Billy. And Tuck, Tuck and Judy as well. Right, yeah, everybody. They're they're in their vehicle, um, and they're following all the knights. And I like that Judy Judy is in. Yeah. Like, like I'm much more invested in this Judy character than I am with, in the Julie character. I like every romantic relationship that they set up in this movie, except for the Alan-Julie one, yeah. which felt really cute, and it felt like they actually got along with each other, but they needed to make room for this other, like, ham-fisted relationship. Yeah. And so they're just like, what, what, what about Julie? Fuck Julie. <laughs> That's the end of that story. Near the camp, Billy is self-flagellating again. <laughs> Do we want to make some jokes? <laughs> While the Native American reads bones on the shore to learn their fortune. Was it the ribs that he removed? <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> He's not self-flagellating. He's self-flagellating. <laughs> oh, God. Tuck calls down to him, and it dawns on Billy that the knights have all returned. Alan hugs Lynette. Morgan reunites with Angie but he steps away to officially challenge Billy for the crown. Once Morgan leaves the shot, Angie lets her emotions show, and she's ecstatic to have her Morgan back. Alan announces Morgan's challenge to Billy, and they're all on the verge of tears of happiness because they're here together with each other again. 
Apparently this was very late in the production, and the tears were all real because the cast was sad to be separating at the end of the shoot. Billy agrees to the challenge. Alan will fight on his behalf since Billy has been slowly dying for this whole movie already. There's no reason to reopen the shoulder wound again. We get a quick moment with Bontempi chewing these guys out for abandoning him. Unfortunately, he spent a lot of money on stuff for the guys, and they never actually signed the contracts. Although, I would argue that these suits look pretty cheap. They, yeah. look, che- they look cheap and cheesy. And they I, look worse than what they started they, with. They did, because they don't look in any way authentic. They're all just like glittery plastic. Yeah, it's foam. It just looks like foam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't... I, I mean, he couldn't spend that much money because they look cheap, but... Also, I thought the whole point was that Bontempi was the big money guy. Right. He should have gotten them something nicer wow. looking. I think that the actual movie budget couldn't afford something right. really fancy. Right, that's true. But what they had before looked amazing. I, you know, it actually resembled metal, even though it wasn't. I, I feel that this is actually completely intentional. That it's in, it's intentional to look cheap and just sparkly and flashy. Yeah. Because that's what Bontempi wants them yeah. to look right. like. Because he's there for a good time. That's mm-hmm. his thing. Morgan isn't technically in violation because they didn't sign a contract, though I'm guessing they would have to return the bikes and the gear that they stole. I think it's weird, though, because I feel like wouldn't you still want there to be, like, teams and competing distinguishable knights? Like, they all are dressed yeah. identically. Yeah, that's that's because it sets it up for, like, Morgan's team versus versus the other right. team. But you're right. Here, the, but in, in, in a, a soul show with just these guys all looking identical, it's kind of weird. Because what they had before, nobody looked alike. Everybody right. had their own different designs right. and stuff. And I also feel like like moving forward, they would ditch these because it, it doesn't fit the show at all. Right. Yeah. And they wouldn't stay shiny after one run either if these people are really wailing on each other. Bontempi hangs out for the duration of the contest in case Morgan wins and he could just represent the new king and take over uh, managing them. In the sound van, Pippin tries to teach Punch how to operate the equipment, but accidentally blasts his ears with a loud tone, and he bangs his head hard on the ceiling of the van. Later, on the shore of the river, Billy knights their new Native American knight. We cut to the contest for the crown. There is no audience here, because, as Billy believes, this isn't just a show, it's their way of life. The tournament begins, and Alan's team is facing off against Morgan's team. Before the match, we saw them announce that anybody who is separated from their bike is eliminated. Alan is riding on the side of a bike that dies in the ring, and his driver can't get it started again for a while, and Morgan's people seem to have mercy on him while he's stranded there until they get it moving again. Eventually, they're moving, and the competitors on the field dwindle. Judy moves to photograph the event, but Tuck gently guides the camera down and tells her that this contest is just for the family's eyes, which... At the same time, it's like, don't take pictures of this. This isn't for everybody. But he's also inviting her into the family, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The teams pick people off back and forth until it's down to Alan, Morgan, and their drivers. Morgan is nearly defeated, but snags himself on the bike and is dragged along behind it briefly, avoiding elimination. Morgan's bike circles around and flies off a ramp, clocking Alan in the head with his weapon and knocking him clear off his bike. Morgan approaches Billy's throne and both of them are in tears as Billy stands to grant Morgan the crown. Lynette hands her crown to Morgan. I, oh, I sorry. The, the this this scene really actually got me choked up. Yeah. Uh, when Billy is just taking like this long look at the crown as he hands it to Morgan, and when Morgan breaks down into tears, like finally having like earned Billy's respect and yeah. gotten this thing that he achieves, I was like, oh my god, I cannot believe that. 
special effects and makeup artist Tom Savini is getting me all <laughs> choked up in this scene, in this King Arthur motorcycle movie. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous, but it, there's so much heart in every scene mm-hmm. that you totally believe what they're going through. And I think they were going through it. Like, I think these emotions are real. I don't think Tom Savini's that great an actor. I think he's. <laughs> I think he feels this way at the end of this fight. He he feels like he's earned it, and he and he understands what what Ed Harris is feeling in this. Well, scene. and he and he finally learned what they stood for by leaving and coming back. Right. Exactly. And I think that also imbued him with a sense of the responsibility. Right. Of what Billy w- had to do for them. Yeah. Lynette hands her crown to Morgan to present to his queen Angie, but on the way to her. He tells Bontempi that he can burn the contracts because he's not making a deal with him. He tears off Angie's cap and places the crown on her head. Lynette has been freed of her curse <laughs> by, <laughs> by this change of leadership, and she pursues her true love, Alan, which we just vaguely hint at. I mm-hmm. I missed all of those hints. I was like, what? <laughs> the, the only clues we get are she sees Julie riding on Alan's bike, and she's like, mm, I wish I was on the back of that bike. See, she- I thought it was more just like disdain for the townies. And I thought that she was crushing on Julie. <laughs> oh, maybe, yeah. But then uh, the other line where she says, "I don't, I don't know if I'm here for you anymore." When she says, "I'm here, but I'm not. I don't know if I'm here for you anymore, but I'm still here." Yeah, Implying, and I think I took that just to mean I'm here for the 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 the, 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 the troop and the the camaraderie right. and everything, and not a specific person who's not you. <laughs> yeah, and on on my second pass, I did notice that they have little glimpses here and there, hmm. but it's so much vaguer than any other movie would have done. Yeah. They would have made it very clear. They they probably would have even had a scene together or a mm-hmm. conversation about mm-hmm. how they can't do this. Well, maybe there was. This movie was two and a half hours long. This movie is very long. <laughs> this movie is as long as Excalibur. It came out the same day and it was the same runtime so that audiences would accidentally watch this instead of that. <laughs> like, wow, this is different than I expected. It to I be. bet you a percentage of the box office was people who thought they were seeing Excalibur. <laughs> And we're just like, what the fuck? When a motorcycle turned into the shop. <laughs> and, and then the other way around, too. Yeah. They were like, Where wait a minute. Where's Ed Harris's ass? <laughs> I mean. Nobody knew who Ed Harris was. <laughs> they, both, they both have just as much uh, uh, odd nudity. That's true. Billy moves down the line, kissing everyone goodbye. He tells Merlin he loves him and goodbye forever. And then he leaves on his bike. Moments later, the Native American knight follows him away. He just like plows through the camp like oh shit i gotta go with him that's my ride they ride the country roads together for a while night and day they're they're going for multiple days of travel they pull up to a fast food place where billy sits down in a booth across from the fat asshole cop that beat Bagman's face in and he starts a fight immediately when the cop tries to grab his gun billy knocks it away and then tosses it over the counter into the deep fryer in the kitchen <laughs> yeah wouldn't that cause a bullet to go off potentially? <laughs> it could have done something I, I don't know it would have been funny though if he missed the fryer and it just like hit a counter and shot the cashier oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's just like oh well shit <laughs> i screwed this up uh but it doesn't it goes in the deep fryer as Billy throws the cop through displays and across a salad bar, the cashier is just ringing up all the damage that they're doing on the cash register. Uh, Billy throws the cop into the kitchen to thunderous applause from the diners here, and then he holds him under the ice cream machine, just smearing dessert all over his head. He tosses the cop in the freezer before leaving. Do you guys recall the last time that someone ended a fight by smearing a cop's head with ice cream and then leaving him in a freezer? Was that Hollywood Nights? No. Did it happen in there? 
I, I remember. So. I remember the cops get like covered in garbage and food outside. Yeah, of the that restaurant. does. Yeah, happen. no, this was like actually dunking the cop's head in like a giant five, five gallon bucket of ice cream. That's correct. Oh, yeah. Um, what movie and he lost was that? an ear because of it because he left him in the freezer overnight. Oh shoot! Was that? Um, wasn't the exterminator? Was it? No. No. Shoot. We don't actually see any of the scene. It's just described to us by the lead character. Uh, the stuntman? It is the stuntman, yes. yeah. Rails back is explaining why the cops have been after him this whole time, and it's because he froze one of their ears off. The Native American drops two coins on the counter to pay for their mounting bill, and they leave the restaurant. The next day, they visit a small schoolhouse. Billy wanders into the middle of the classroom during the Pledge of Allegiance and walks over to little Billy's desk, the kid who wanted an autograph earlier, to award him a massive bloody sword, and then he turns to leave. I like to imagine that he stopped by like several schools that day. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he like, interrupted a bunch of classes. How terrified children are there out there? Like, Billy? Is there a Billy in here? Why do you have a Billy? sword, sir? No, no uh, not I you. gotta go. <laughs> he and the Native American ride together across the rest of the country, but all the while, Billy is dripping blood from his wound. He slowly loses consciousness as he rides, but suddenly a big smile crosses his face and we see his fantasy. He's riding a horse alone through huge open fields in full plate mail. He leans back and smiles on the bike, and we hard cut to an 18-wheeler blasting its horn just before demolishing Billy on the road. The pieces of his armor separate seemingly empty and tumble along under the truck, and all his Native American companion can do is stand there and survey the damage. Uh, on the front of the truck. Is there a bird? Um, there's not a bird per se, but there is a very black wing-like design on the front of the truck i kept trying to pause it and i couldn't get it right i was just like if they wanted us to see a bird here it would have been more obvious mm -hmm. than it is but maybe there is a bird on there but it's, it's also that the blackbird rider was with him right yeah, yeah that's and true. so i you know you could take either one i guess yeah we cut to billy's funeral and the entire cast is there in uniform to say goodbye to their former king lee performs the song that he hadn't finished earlier the troop hits the road and the credits roll over them racing down the freeway. And that's the end of our film. Our writer, director, and editor was George A. Romero. He's best known for writing and directing his long-running series of zombie films, starting with 1968's Night of the Living Dead and carrying through Dawn of the Dead, Day of, Land of, Diary of, and Survival of. Between zombie titles, he did stuff like The Crazies, This, Martin, Creep Show, and Monkey Shines. He obviously has writing credits on his own films, Creepshow 2, and various remakes of his films. A long-lost title of his called Amusement Park was recently discovered and restored in 4K by Indie Collect and premieres on Shudder June 8th of oh. this year. What year is that? Um, I don't know because IMDb says 2019 because it hadn't actually oh, it was premiered yet. But premiered. I, th I okay. think it was prior to Knight Riders even. Okay, let's watch that. Yeah, it looks good. Shot in 73. 73, okay. At the end of shooting, Romero married Christine Forrest, who plays Angie in the film, and they were married for 30 years. Awesome. Romero passed away in 2017, so fairly recently. The music here was from Donald Rubenstein. He composed the scores for Martin Romero's Bruiser, and he composed the theme for Tales from the Dark Side, a horror anthology series. He also plays a member of the musician trio in the film. Cinematographer Michael Gornick was the DP on Martin, Dawn of the Dead, Creepshow, and Day of the Dead for Romero. He appears in several Romero films as characters and actually came back to direct Creepshow 2. The co-editor, Pasquale Buba, or Pasquale Bubba, 
B-U-B-A. How would you pronounce that? Bubba? Booba? Yeah, Booba. Followed up his collaborations with Romero by cutting a few Tales from the Crypt episodes, Michael Mann's Heat, and 1997's The Brave, featuring Johnny Depp and Marlon Brando as Native Americans. What? They're not Native Americans. <laughs> Why do they play Native Americans in a movie together? Brando is like a huge Native American activist. Why would he play a Native American in a movie if he's not a Native American? It wouldn't be the last time Johnny Depp played a Native American either. Right, and Johnny Depp directed The Brave. <laughs> so that's got to be terrific but uh yeah and then he came back and he played tonto for the lone ranger movie which i actually love that movie but uh it was critically lambasted ed harris plays billy this is only his second named character on his acting resume after hotchkiss the coyote from borderline last year we'll see him next in romero's creep show and later as john glenn and the right stuff he's also in apollo 13 the truman show and he's pollock in Pollock. Gary Lottie played Alan. He has very few credits, mostly one-off TV series appearances, but he's great. Uh, he could have worked more. I actually wish this guy had played Lance a lot for Borman because he's way hotter than that guy was. Tom Savini played Morgan. He's the master of gore effects, having provided the effects for Effects, Friday the 13th, Eyes of a Stranger, and Maniac so far in our backlog. Obviously, he shows up in Maniac, where he fired a shotgun into his own dummy's face. He worked with Romero previously on Martin and Dawn of the Dead, and he shows up on both sides of the camera for Creepshow, future Friday the 13th installments, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and plays bigger parts in From Dusk Till Dawn, the Dawn of the Dead remake, Grindhouse, Django Unchained, Machete and Machete Kills, and his most terrifying role in The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I don't remember him in that one. I think he's a teacher or Is something. He? I'll have to go watch it again. He also directed a 1990 remake of Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Patricia Tallman played Julie. In 82, she plays Queen Guinevere in something called Stuck on You. Uh, she's back for Romero in Monkey Shines. She plays Barbara in Savini's Night of the Living Dead. And she appears as one of the witches in Army of Darkness. She also has a stunt credit in Jurassic Park. I guess she would be doubling for Sadler, would be my guess, Laura Dern. I was going to say uh, Dern. Christine Forrest played Angie. She's multiple characters in Dawn of the Dead. She's Tabitha Raymond in The Crate from Creepshow. Yeah. She's Marianne Hodges in Monkey Shines. And as I mentioned before, she married Romero just after the film wrap principal photography. She also served as an associate producer on Savini's Night of the Living Dead. Sorry, I was just going back because I was like, stuck on you. That's the it's, one. It's not the one with. Not the one where they're conjoined twins. <laughs> Matt Damon and, and uh, uh, Greg Kinnear. <laughs> Greg Kinnear stuck together. Yeah. No, not that one. But it, I think it also has an exclamation mark in the title. I think they both do. But uh, Stuck on You is like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's like a softcore comedy thing where like this couple is taken back in time to see relationships of old or something like that. And so she's Guinevere in a little King Arthur segment. Oh, okay. Different movie. Yeah. And she's stuck to Greg Kinnear. It's weird. <laughs> Warner Shook played Pippin. He also appears in Dawn of the Dead and Creepshow. Brother Blue played Merlin. He doesn't have a lot of IMDb credits, but he's a very interesting guy. He essentially is playing himself here, except for the medical stuff, because he's a professional storyteller and musician, and he went to Harvard and Yale and eventually got a PhD in divinity with pastoral sacred storytelling. The city councils of both Boston and Cambridge passed resolutions declaring him their official storytellers. Mm. That's neat. Cynthia Adler played Rocky. 
She was the narrator of the HBO documentary series Real Sex. She provided the voice of Tiwa in Fantastic Planet and lots of commercial voice work, including a run as the singing voice of the Chiquita Banana. Oh. John Amplis played Whiteface. Who's Whiteface? He's the mime that you said okay. carried the baby. <laughs> baby. Baby stealer. That's what we should have said. Uh, he's the title character of Romero's Martin. He's Martinez in Dawn of the Dead. He's Nathan's corpse in the Father's Day creep show segment. And he's Ted Fisher in Day of the Dead. Don Barry played Bagman. He did explosive effects on Dawn of the Dead and makeup on Scanners. He has surprisingly few acting credits, but he also plays Naked Man in Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead many years later. Amanda Davies played Sheila. She also plays a reporter in a little film called Parts the Clonus Horror. <laughs> Martin Ferrero was Bon Tempe. We saw him last as a guard in The Incredible Shrinking Woman. We also recently caught him in the movie High Spirits on our own time. Mm-hmm. But I think that this might even be the film that inspired Spielberg to cast him as the blood-sucking lawyer in Jurassic Park, who gets T-Rect on the toilet. Ken Foree played Little John. He's Peter in Romero's Dawn of the Dead, one of the lead characters. He was also Roger Rockmore in 62 episodes of Kenan and Kel's TV series. He plays a televangelist in Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake. And then he connected with Rob Zombie and has shown up in The Devil's Rejects and Zombie's first Halloween film. Ken Hickson played Steve, the attorney. He was dark in Hollywood Nights, another movie with knights. Uh, he actually has a batch of screenwriting credits, including Grandview USA, Inventing the Abbots, City by the Sea, and Welcome to the Rileys. John Hostetter played Tuck. He was a poet in Heartbeat last year. He shows up as a cop on Knight Rider the following year. He was on the series <laughs> Knight Rider after the movie Knight Riders. He plays Styles in Beverly Hills Cop 2, and he was John in 65 episodes of Murphy Brown. Michael P. Moran, he's credited as Cook, but I'm pretty sure... That's the police officer that Billy beats up in the restaurant. I don't know why he's credited as Cook, but I double-checked the credits in the movie, and it says Michael P. Moran is Cook, but it says that he played Nick the Pig in Scarface and Frank the Doorman in Ghostbusters 2, and the cop looks a lot like Nick the Pig. And no one here is credited as cop, so I think this is him. Scott H. Reiniger played Marhalt. He was Roger, the cop, one of the lead characters of Romero's 78 Dawn of the Dead. He also shows up as a general in Zack Snyder's remake. Maureen Sadusk played Judy Rawls. She also plays Girl on Crutches in the first Happy Hooker film. She looked really familiar to me, mm. but I think she just looks a lot like the lady from Total Recall whose face opens up. Oh, yeah, yeah, But yeah. it's not her. John Harrison played Pelinor. I don't remember someone being named Pelinor in this. But he was Lacey Bickle, the director in Effects last year. He was also the composer of that movie and Creepshow and Day of the Dead. He wrote the screenplay for Disney's Dinosaur Movie and two separate Dune miniseries in the early 2000s, Dune and Children of Dune. More recently, he has written for Leverage and The Librarians, as well as Greg Nicotero's current Creepshow reboot. Hmm. Marty Schiff played Ban. He was a bar extra in Effects. I think that's the scene where... Tom Savini's wearing that rainbow hat with a fan on the top of it because he's silly. Stephen King played Hoagie Man. He's the husband of Tabitha King. His novels were first adapted to film for Carrie in 1976 and later a TV miniseries for Salem's Lot, but we've already covered the third adaptation last year for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Moving through the 80s, we'll cover adaptations of his work like Creepshow, directed by Romero, Cujo, Dead Zone, Christine, 
Children of the Corn, Firestarter, Cat's Eye, Maximum Overdrive, which he wrote and directed, Stand By Me, Creepshow 2, The Running Man, and Pet Cemetery. I always forget The Running Man because yeah. it's credited to his pseudonym Richard Bachman, I think the novel was. And also, it, it doesn't seem like... <laughs> it's not a Stephen King-ish thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, that also reminds me, though, that Christine, the car, is named after Romero's wife, Christine Forrest who Stephen King met here and then again on the set of uh, Creepshow. Um, so she was actually the inspiration for the naming the car Christine. Tabitha King played Hoagie Man's wife. She's an accomplished author in her own right and the mother of horror author and Stephen King lookalike Joe Hill. Jennifer Elizabeth played the baby in the stroller. She's a stunt woman now with credits in Bad Santa, Green Hornet, Amazing Spider-Man, Jason Bourne, and Captain Marvel. So she could take credit for doing stunts as early as i don't know how old she yeah is except for i i literally watching it back i don't think the baby and the motorcycle are in the same shot I, together I at all so, so <laughs> I, I don't know if you'd call it a stunt if sure. you just sat on a stroller and were edited into danger um if i were her i would <laughs> yeah but it's interesting that she worked on green hornet because that's connects to because we we're talking about the lone ranger because they're related right the green hornet and the lone ranger supposedly yeah in the lore which is funny because what's his name that plays the bad guy in the lone ranger plays the dad in the green hornet tom wilkinson yeah from uh eternal sunshine genie jeffries played genie that was bontempi's girlfriend she's a makeup artist from dawn of the dead and this joseph Pilato played disgruntled fair worker he played dominic in effects he was rhodes in day of the dead and he plays dean martin at jack rabbit slims in tarantino's pulp fiction he did voices for Beetleborgs and Digimon, and he's Big Ed in an episode of Briscoe County. That's the Pirates episode. Yeah. Bobby Van Eamon played Rocky's girlfriend. She was a campfire extra in effects, and Ramona Zini plays Babe posing in photo with Morgan, and she was also a bar extra in effects. Those are all the credits I have for this one. Uh, I wanted to... It's not anyone like of importance. It's more the character name uh so the actress was uh nancy chesney and it, the credit is overly protective mother at renaissance fair is and this I, the one protect your baby from a motorcycle I, I, i'm <laughs> hoping that it's not that's a, <laughs> i hope it is <laughs> i was like overly protective mother i know i think adequately protective mother <laughs> no the one that leaves her kid on the sidelines of a motorcycle fight yeah uh, i mean it could be some other person in the, no in the it's fair. for sure that lady how dare you leave your child with a mime what while other you're unconscious what <laughs> other mother in this movie like they don't even imply anyone else is a mother let alone that they're uh, protective at all yeah well, julie's mom is a mom but she's certainly she's not, not very protective <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, julie's mom should be credited as underprotective mother <laughs> uh, but yeah i like this film a lot it's got a lot of heart it's really fun mm-hmm. the stunts are great you could have cut 45 minutes out of it yeah um you you drop that whole julie plot right because i mean she's she's cute and i i like the relationship that they had going but if you're going to end it like that then just take the whole thing out yeah usually the purpose of a character like this is to have things that the characters who are involved in the fair already know to explain them to Mm -hmm. it's like it's like when she's talking to angie and she's like oh now they have to do this it's like oh okay thank you because i didn't know what was going on as an audience member right we we have this character to act as a soundboard for us right she's supposed to be the newcomer that's learning things yeah but 
then again, that's if she's like a uh, Jodie Foster and Carney, like she's learning. She's right. going to become a part of this family. Mm-hmm. Nope. She she is dropped. It, and she's not even really even wanted. It's, it's like a weird, like, just like, uh, I just needed to have like a little bit of a fling. For but it's Alan. weird because she gets so much more work to her background than Lynette who is the queen of the show mm-hmm. and literally only has lines when they're in the tent when, you know, Billy's recovering after hours. And it's just her saying like, stop being crazy. Stop. Stop being crazy. And then whenever they leave the tent, she closes her mouth and she doesn't talk for the entire competition. She just sits there and looks worried no matter what's happening. And so her character got nothing to do, which is why we didn't even know that she was in a relationship with Alan mm-hmm. until it was happening in front of us. Yeah, that, that that came out of nowhere. Yeah. And and also I feel could probably have been cut. Yeah. Like I, I don't I don't really this this I think the purpose of that is so that we feel like fewer people are directly damaged by mm-hmm. Billy's passing. But then Billy's passing is also very like Jedi esque. <laughs> like yeah. it's just like yeah. his uniform falls to the ground. I thought it was like vanishing point. Like and the car's just empty at the end. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, like you said, his armor is kind of like empty. Like we don't see any blood and guts here. Like yeah. he's just sort of And it's Romero. He's not shy about that. Yeah. It's <laughs> I'm sure he, Savini had limbs prepared. He's gone to a better place. Yeah. Yeah, he was just summoned to the other realm where he's yeah. actually yeah. riding that horse. He made a blood sacrifice. And and I agree. It, it is it is too long. And uh I mean, as great as some of the stuff is, uh, there, there's so much you could trim. Um, but it didn't stop me from enjoying this film. And I, I honestly I, don't think it would have felt like it dragged at all if I weren't doing my notes for it. Mm-hmm. I think if I were just watching it, that I, that it wouldn't have even seemed overly long for me. Although the fight scenes do get a little repetitive. And it's like, how many times am I going to watch a motorcycle go over a ramp and be like, wow, that's yeah. how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think... Uh, I think there was room all over the place for stuff. There's also, and not that I, the, not that I especially want to lose any moments with him, but there's scenes with Brother Blue where he tells a story mm-hmm. in the tent, and it's just like, what was the point of that? Like, that's not spurring the story along. That didn't need to happen. Like, you can take that out it, because he tells the whole story of King Arthur, and it's like, oh, and then you know, if he hadn't tried to stop it, then it then it wouldn't happen in the first place. And it's like, that's not actually relevant. Like that's not a metaphor for what's happening here. Yeah. So that story doesn't need to be told, even though I love your storytelling voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's well, not relevant. And and I feel like that was part of the purpose of it was you got brother blue. You got to have him tell a story. Yeah, that's he, true. He, he has to tell at least one story and play an instrument. Yeah. Although it was kind of weird because he was doing it with like surgical gloves covered in blood. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of got a little creepiness to it. <laughs> Um, although whenever I saw the, the butterflies on him, uh, <laughs> I kept thinking about the Venture Brothers, uh, because it's a blue Morpho. Oh yeah. Um, and that's like this I one. I know the Monarch is the bad guy. Right, well, the Monarch is the bad guy, but as you go through the, uh, the series, you find out that his father was a green Hornet character called the blue Morpho. Okay. Um, and was like, you know, just like the green Hornet is pretending to be a villain, but is actually, but he's actually a good guy. Yeah. And he never found that out until too late. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, I also thought that, I mean, obviously Romero has a pretty 
healthy track record of being very progressive in his casting. But I also thought that it was um, so ahead of the curve for him to have, you know, gay characters, Mm -hmm. men and women, and to Mm -hmm. handle their relationships the same way he handles any other character's relationships. It's never a joke that somebody's gay. It's just they're in a relationship with each other and it plays out the way any other relationship does in the story. And I thought that was really cool that he was doing that already in, Mm -hmm. in 81. Because I feel like every gay character that we've had so far has either been a serial killer or a stereotype so far. Yeah. So it's a big thumbs up for me. Yeah, I uh, I I liked it a whole lot more than I was expecting to like it. I I I mean, I maybe I liked it more because I walked into it thinking, oh my god, this is gonna be ridiculously cheesy, awful, and I'm like, wait, it's it's not. Yeah, and, it's cute. But I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I, it was two and a half hours, and I know we said we could lose some of it, but. It didn't really bother me at two and a half hours. I, there was no point at which I'm just like, this needs to end. I'm just like, yeah. I mean, the fight scenes are long, but they're fun. I still think maybe it's two and a half hours so that the showtimes lined up to Excalibur showtimes <laughs> so that people would accidentally buy tickets to it. There you go. Uh, it's a thumbs up for me. Uh, it 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 got me emotionally in some scenes. Uh, I I feel like there's like a lot. You could probably peel apart some layers in this. You know, like the go deeper into like Friar Tuck being seduced. And that's why he's now he's wearing like the devil horns in the right. one scene and Morgan selling out to this group and, and realizing that his men are going crazy as a result of him selling out to, yeah. uh, and trying to reclaim that honor in addition to the crown that he, the, the crown and the respect that he wants. Yeah. I feel like that relationship between Tuck and Judy is the kind of thing that doesn't really happen a lot in movies anymore. Like, if people are going to be in a relationship, like start a relationship and and get deep into a relationship mm-hmm. with each other, it's the main characters of the movie. Yeah. And it doesn't happen to just side characters like that where it's like, oh, no, that's cute. They're lovebirds and, they're, and they stay with each other for the rest of the movie. And it's just yeah. cute to see them together every time because they're just funny together. Um, but I really liked that relationship. I feel like it, it was, uh, you know, sort of out of the ordinary mm-hmm. um letterboxd what are we thinking uh i actually have this very high uh, i have this as number four. Oh wow um i like i said i i just i really enjoyed it i was talking about it uh with my family i was like this is good um so this puts it below thief uh and above atlantic city all right jess so i have it pretty high as well not not quite as high i have it at number eight okay uh, I have it above my bloody Valentine and below the dogs of war. Okay. Um, I thought I had it high, but I have it at 16, um, which is right under Omen three, um, and above maniac. Um, I, I, I should say that, uh, my top 10 are going to change dramatically over the right. course. Yeah. Of this we're getting season. into the, I, I mean, starting with this movie, I feel like we're moving into the summer season and we're getting into the really fun stuff. And and, and with Thief and Excalibur so far, like mm-hmm. we're really getting into the titles that people yeah. know. How long is it before Amy gets knocked out of your top spot? <laughs> uh, soon, I think. <laughs> I I mean, it's still it'll probably end the year in my top ten. You think so? But I, I don't okay. think it it's it's probably not long for the slot it's in now. I yeah. would I would guess in the next month or two it'll it'll drop down a couple. Yeah, see, even so Night Riders, even at number four. I don't think we'll be in the top 10 when we're by done. the end of the year, by the end of the year. I think yeah. my, my top three, which are solid, uh, all of those are going to get pushed down. 
Yeah. Every every single one of them. Yep. I think that's everything for Night Riders. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Night Hawks, which IMDb describes like so. When one of Europe's most lethal terrorists shows up to New York, an elite undercover cop is assigned to take him down by any means necessary. We leave you now with the trailer for Nighthawks. Is this trip business or pleasure? Pleasure, I hope. Welcome to the United States. Hamer Reinhardt, sometimes called Wolfgar. Born Frankfurt, Germany, 1946. Educated Paris and Patrice Lumumba University, Moscow. Currently self-employed. Occupation, international terrorist. You are to be indoctrinated in counter-terrorist techniques. Deke de Silva, age 35. Born and raised New York City. Honorable discharge, U.S. Army, 1972. 52 registered kills. Occupation, cop. One man can bring the world to its knees. And only one man can stop him. Universal Pictures presents Sylvester Stallone in Nighthawks, coming in April.